you can chant along with me if you know the mantra. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Ajnana Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshura Militam Yenatasmai Shri Gurave Namaha. So we are finishing chapter eight and then going on to chapter nine, Krishna willing. So I believe we're on text 40 of chapter eight. Let me just get that on my computer. Yes, text 40 and get my notes ready here. Okay, so one second, sorry. Oh wait, no. <laughs> yeah, all right, chapter eight. Text 40 and then going on to chapter 9. I, I'm sorry, I got the wrong uh, on my computer. Okay, text 39 and 40. So if you recall, um, there was this incredible um, pastime of the churning of the milk ocean. And so many things came out, <laughs> right? right? Uh, elephants and, and cows and poison that Lord Shiva drank. And now the nectar has come out. The nectar of immortality has come out. And there's a bit of a, a tug of war going on, literally, practically speaking, uh, to who's going to get the, the nectar uh, of immortality. So we start with, uh, okay, well, I'll just read 39, uh, 38 again. O King, a quarrel then arose among the demons over who would get the nectar first. Each of them said, you cannot drink it first. I must drink it first. Me first, not you. Some of the demons said, all the demigods have taken part in churning of the milk ocean, on the ocean of milk. Now, as everyone has an equal right to partake in any public sacrifice, According to the eternal religious system, it is befitting that the demigods now have a share of the nectar. O king, in this way, the weaker demons forbade the stronger demons to take the nectar. Purport. Desiring to take the nectar, those among the demons who were less strong spoke in favor of the demigods. The weaker daityas, daityas is a name for demons in Sanskrit, naturally pleaded on behalf of the demigods to stop the stronger daityas from drinking the nectar without sharing it. In this way, disagreement and trouble arose as they forbade one another to drink the nectar. Hmm. So there's uh, some interesting political dynamics going on here. And I think we can pretty much rationalize just about anything to get what we want. So here they're taking sides with the, what they would consider the bad guys in order to get the more extreme good guys in their eyes, the, de the more extreme demons from taking all the nectar. So they figure, okay, we, well, um, we can make friends with, with the demigods and they'll be a lot uh, easier to deal with in terms of getting some of the nectar from them if we take their side and say, no, no, come on, we have to be fair here. So it was an indirect way to you know, get what, what they wanted. So that's, uh, we, we do this in different, 
ways we may sometimes in our own lives, um, it's, a, it's slightly different, but rationalize. I, I think our minds are very good at rationalizing. Isn't it? I, think, I think for me, it's an, um, it's an Olympic sport. You know, I can pretty much, uh, yeah, rationalize. And, and, and as you know, uh, I've, I've said that it's, it's not really a joke. It's a good, you know, rationalize can be spelled rational hyphen L-I-E-S. But it's often a self, uh, a self lie to us. You know, uh, one, one, uh, one way it manifests as well, other things are worse. So I can do this. It's not as bad as that, right? That that's uh, um, or or you know, so and so is much worse off than me, right? And anyway, there's there's pretty much unlimited ways we can we can we can do this uh, rationalizing, uh, and it's and it's a part of self realization to catch our mind when when it does this because uh, it's it's often self illusional as if is illusional work it's putting our, you know it, it's it's not being honest with ourself and that is the first person we should be honest with of course we should be honest in our dealings with others but having a, a good sense of self-honesty i mean it's it's okay to say well you know i just Maybe at this point, I'm not up to that standard. And therefore I'm choosing to take a lower standard uh, in, you know, and, and again, it may be a self-imposed lower standard, right? You know, um, and I know it's not best. Um, and I know I could do better, but you know, this is what I'm doing. That's a little bit more honest and say, well, actually this, this lower standard is actually fine. You know, so. It's something to be, you know, to, to be quite reflective about it. Uh, Prabhupada said once, a devotee is, um, what's the word? Is as thoughtful as a non-devotee is speculative, right? So we're meant to be thoughtful. And the word brahmana means broad-minded. So thinking, you know, in a, in a holistic way. So here, uh, really, you know, it was all about themselves. They, they were saying, well, we've got to be fair, give the nectar to the demigods, but it was all, you know, uh, the, the uh, conniving mind saying, well, this is, you know, this is a better chance for us to get this nectar because these other guys, they're going to take it all. So um, <laughs> I haven't really thought this out very well, but, you know, it... it um, and I, and I don't generally get into politics, so it's not a question of getting into politics, but I was just thinking about um, that uh, senator in West Virginia, right, who is a Democrat, at least on paper, right? But he seems to side a lot with the Republicans and the more uh, left, of, left of him in the Democratic Party really don't, don't like him for that. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but it just crossed my mind because he, because he's kind of he is a Democrat, but he's always like, well, no, no, let's you know, siding with the Republicans. It seems so. I, you know, uh, we can consider if that's a good analogy here or not. <laughs> uh, 
So, but ultimately in this case, the more uh, weaker demons, they were also being self-interested, but just finding a, a uh, what may have been a smarter way to get what they needed, what they wanted. Gurudas, you have your hand up. Haribo. Uh, good morning, everyone, and my obeisances to all the devotees. <clears throat> um, I just, I was thinking how ironic it was that you mentioned um, the rationalizing person thinks, oh, well, they have it much worse, and that makes me feel better that somebody has it worse. Um, that's kind of, you know, really odd when you think about it, but I put my hand up because I was uh, just idly wondering, how did this, I mean, obviously it's there in Bhagavatam, but um, how did this idea of the nectar of immortality actually manifest itself since devotees know that you can't actually drink something to become immortal? Um, well, I was afraid this would come up. <laughs> no. Oh, sorry. No, 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 not afraid, really. Um, and I, I didn't have time to talk with some devotee scholars about this, so I'm just going to take it at face value from what Prabhupada says, that um, why not? <laughs> uh, in other words, for example, we, we, we hear elsewhere that Lord, that Lord Brahma can be a Lord Brahma in one lifetime and ant in the next in another lifetime, right? But we also know that there's many Lord Brahmas in all the various universes. So maybe these demigods in this universe who drank this uh, nectar of immortality um, attained to the spiritual world. You know, it, I mean, when you think about it, they have the association of Matsya, they have the association of Mohini Murti, they have the association of these different incarnations of Krishna. So, you know, it's, and we also know that some, and I don't, and I have no idea exactly how this works, but it is uh, said that some great souls return to the spiritual world in their self-same body. Now, I don't, I obviously it wasn't, you know, blood, mucus, you know, all the stuff that we have, but something that seemed like the body that they have in this life. Now that's not generally what we understand. Right. And as a matter of fact, there's some, yeah. So I will look into this. Um, and I was going to ask Banu Swami, but I didn't have a chance to ask him. So I'm just going to take it because I tried to, I tried to look in Prabhupada's purports about this and it just says immortality. Um, so. Thank you. There you go. Or, could, you know, but you're right. It could just mean like, like, for example, we're going to hear about Rahu later on. Rahu is not a spiritual planet. So it's not like it's eternally eternal, right? Yeah. So, okay. Mm -hmm. Jenny in bed, what are you drinking? It looks like it's really good. <laughs> Herba mate chai. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> and homemade cashew milk. Ribos, yeah. <laughs> All right, ribos. Okay, very good. Keep you warm in northern New York, upstate New York. Yeah. Okay, so then uh, anything else on rational lies? Okay, then let us carry on. We're going up to verse, uh, well, three of the next chapter, actually. 146. 
the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who can counteract any unfavorable condition, then assume the form of an extremely beautiful woman. This incarnation as a woman, Mohini Murti, was most pleasing to the mind. Her complexion resembled in color a newly grown blackish lotus, and every part of her body was beautifully situated. Her ears were equally decorated with earrings. Her cheeks were very beautiful. Her nose was raised and her face full of youthful luster. Her large breasts made her waist seem very thin. Attracted by the aroma of her face and body, bumblebees hummed around her, and thus her eyes were restless. Her hair, which was extremely beautiful, was garland with malika flowers. Her attractively constructed neck was decorated with a necklace and other ornaments. Her arms were decorated with bangles. Her body was covered with a clean sari and her breasts seemed like islands in an ocean of beauty. Her legs were decorated with ankle bells because of the movements of her eyebrows as she smiled with shyness and glanced over the demons. All the demons were saturated with lusty desires and every one of them desired to possess her. Chapter nine. So Sukadeva Goswami, this, right, this incredible renunciate, totally indifferent to the material world is, is narrating these pastimes. And he says, thereafter, the demons became inimical, in, inimical toward one another. Throwing and snatching the container of nectar, they gave up their friendly relationship. Meanwhile, they saw a very beautiful young woman coming uh, forward toward them. Upon seeing the beautiful woman, the demon said, alas, how wonderful is her beauty, how wonderful the luster of her body, and how wonderful the beauty of her, age, of her youthful age. Speaking in this way, they quickly approached her, full of lusty desires to enjoy her, and began to inquire from her in many ways. Oh, wonderfully beautiful girl, you have such nice eyes resembling the petals of a lotus flower. Who are you? Where do you come from? What is your purpose in coming here? And to whom do you belong? Oh, you whose thighs are extraordinarily beautiful, our minds are becoming agitated simply by seeing you. And Prabhupada mentions that to whom do you belong meant, you know, in uh, who is your father? <clears throat> and that was a, you know, so culturally, first of all, you know, um, in, in many parts of the world, if you were to say this to a woman, you'd probably get a good slap in the face or a call to the police or something like that, right? Uh, or some people might feel flattered, I don't know. Um, but the, uh, the point here that to whom do you belong, right? And means whose daughter are you? Um, because the, the demons all uh, understood that she was not married and they desired to marry her. And Prabhupada mentions that in this culture, the, 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 a woman is supposed to belong, belong to her father before marriage, to her husband after marriage, and to her growing son, sons in old age. So when we hear something like that in, in our present con, uh, day context, it, it would like, it could in many people kind of conjure up uh, vis uh, visions of the Taliban or of, you know, only recently can some women drive a car in Saudi Arabia, right? And, and again, I'm not, I'm not poo-pooing uh, Islam by saying this, but just that idea, like, 
who do you, who does a woman belong to? You know, like, you know, you can trade her like, you know, baseball cards or something. That's, sorry, that's a modern day context when I was a kid. Um, so it's, it is important when we read, when we read any historical document and what to speak of the, uh, the Bhagavatam, which was written thousands of years ago, that we uh, understand culture, we understand the importance of cultural and historical context. For example, if, if you read something somewhere and somebody says, my daughter will be heading to California shortly after her marriage. And you know, you think, oh, that's cool. Uh, you know, California's a nice place. place. Taxes are high, gas is expensive, but you know, it, 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 what is it? it? It never rains in Southern California, as the song goes, <laughs> uh, right? Or, um, you know, if you're going to San Francisco, make sure you wear a flower in your hair, you know, <laughs> depending on, right? So it sounds great. But if the, if the historical context was that, that the uh, mother was saying this in 1849, right? And it was the gold rush and so many people died on the way and it was, it was a harrowing experience, uh, you know, going uh, across the country um, to in search uh, of gold. It, it would have a totally different, you know, the, the sentence, my daughter will be heading to California shortly after she marries. You know, the friend might say, oh, my God, that's terrible. Is she going to survive? Right. Um, and historical context is, is something that is argued a lot. Um, for example, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, if anyone's read that book, uh, the, the, which I won't mention, I won't repeat it, but the way that Huck uh, refers to his friend Jim who's an African-American. Um, and he uses a word that was common in those days. And actually, it was actually, historically, it was actually kind of uncommon that Huck was such good friends with Jim, right? But again, in, in modern day context, we read that, we go, oh, well, better, you know, read another book, right? So, and, and, and what to speak of, yeah, and so it's so historic. So the Vedic culture, um, it was it was as it wasn't a a uh, well for lack of a better word a Taliban ish uh, mood. It was it was a, actually you know women were held uh, in the highest esteem. Um, they were they were one was one would uh, address a woman other than their wife as mother just out of great respect, right um, for her. <clears throat> And always feeling um, that they should be always taken care of in the best way possible. Even for me, I obviously I'm not a, uh, a a product of that culture. But I, 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 you know, ever since my son was, you know, young, I would always tell him that you know, your duty, one of your main duties in life, is to take care of your mother in her old age. And he has that very much inculcated in his mind and heart. You know, I may be there, I may not be there. Usually women outlast uh, men, right? In terms of life expectancy, right? And, and you know, he, he, he has that very, it's very deeply in his heart that he will, you know, do that. So there, so there can be a beauty to this, but when we read it 
out of the contest, like what? <laughs> right, so I just wanted to uh, spend a little time on that. And historical context, the, um, it's examining the social, political, cultural, economic, and environmental situations that influence the, I'm reading a, uh, a definition, that influence the events or trends we see during that time. So social, political, culture. And I think um, anyone who's listened to Wisdom of the Sages or has read the Bhagavatam or the Bhagavad Gita, we have a Bhagavad Gita class on Fridays, we understand that there's a different, there's, um, there's a different cultural context. And one of the, one of the challenges and one of the beauties um, is to translate the principles into modern day. In the beginning of the sixth chapter of Nectar of Devotion, Prabhupada talks about the difference between principles and details. Right? So the principle of respecting women, for example, or the principle of being respectful to people in general, or the, the principle of samadarshina, um, the principle of honoring differences, you know, these are, you know, and then how they apply in a certain as we said, social, political, cultural, economic, environmental situ situations um, will, will, will be different. It will be different. And those of us who have um, traveled around the world, um, we, we, you know, I, I lived in India for 21 years. Henry's visited India 25 times, I think. Uh, I would say that I'm, I've after 21 years, I've scratched the surface of understanding the culture. Because it's, you know, culture is a very deep, very deep thing. And, uh, and we see things differently um, according to the, you know, growing up in the liberal Long Island, New York upbringing is very different than growing up in, um, well, especially in those days in, you know, uh, Selma or Montgomery, Alabama. Right, same country, even. Very different. And we see in India, uh, a Bengali person is very different than a Gujarati upbringing. Right? So, any thoughts, questions, comments on this? Well, I did have a thought since you wanted yes, to delve Andy, into please. it. But even within the context, there's a lot of subtleties. And I think it's, I just want to bring it up because we might not cover the purport. But the demons, actually a very privileged woman in, in this era would be asked to choose her own mate. It was given, Arjuna participated in one of those. Remember shooting right. the fish and all that? So, and, uh, and, and the other wrinkle to this whole thing is the de demons could have the expectations. Well, maybe that's why this beautiful, exceptional woman, she's one of those top women and she's looking for a mate. And so there's a rational side to, to, to what they're saying too. Yeah, right, right. And she gets to choose. Yeah. And and interesting, you know, also is that in the context of a, arranged marriages, right? I never heard about a man being told he can choose his own mate. I think they're always the parents always selected for the man. So in this case, the woman could actually be a little bit more free under the system than the men. I don't know. Is there any? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because um, my marriage was semi-arranged. Not like, you know, you see the, that I, I saw my, uh, my wife for the first time on the wedding day. <laughs> that was, 
that was not the case. But it, I was introduced to her by the, the temple president. Of course, it was her choice and my choice. Ultimately, you know, you know, there wasn't, a, yeah. Um, but I, but there, you know, if, if you talk to people who've had, you know, because especially when I first moved to India in the '80s, and I would assume that devotees here, I, I'm just guessing that at least the two, the four devotees here um, on the call from India maybe it would be somewhat likely that their parents had arranged marriages, I'm thinking. I don't know if Shakshi or Mun or Jiva or Ananda want to uh, tell us. Even my arranged Prabhu, everybody's arranged. So. What's that, Shakshi? Everybody's arranged Prabhu in my family. Everyone's arranged in your family, right. In uh, my family, last three generations, they were all love marriages and actually across different castes and my grandfather actually was married to a Portuguese lady, so completely uh -huh. across. So yours more, your family's more modern in that sense, or whatever word we want to use. Yeah. By the way, for those uh, in a, uh, not from an Indian context, the the distinction is usually love marriage, which basically means the way we have marriages in the West, and arranged marriages. So those two. So very interesting, Jiva. Uh, yeah. Yes, Prabhu and my parents, this is Anand Rupa, and my parents never met each other and they never even saw each other before their marriage. Pretty yeah. much. <laughs> yeah. And the idea was the idea was that you grow into love as you uh, you know after marriage, right? Of course, there was it wasn't done haphazardly. There was uh, we're really getting into it, aren't we? Uh, there was uh, astrological, you know, compatibility. Right. And and also the parents would talk to each other. But also, you know, if you look historically in, in Western society. <laughs> by the way, uh, you know, that time somebody asked Mahatma Gandhi, what do you think of Western civilization? And his answer was, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, but often marriages, I, I read this, you know, I didn't research it but you know going back 150 years and more uh often were marriages based on economics uh, or or in higher society on political you know on politics uh, right and things like that so um so that, again but again historical context right and i i'm afraid to ask but in under would you say your parents had to uh, have a nice marriage uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. answer. <laughs> you know, um, there's, uh, you know, the, that was not, I would say, very perfect. But uh, what I have learned from my parents is, in spite of the perfections, they found always ways to keep us all together, to give us the environment where we feel nourished and we can grow. So, yeah, the answer to your question is no, that was not a perfect marriage. But that I don't think that is related to not knowing each other before, but that was the trend in those times. Parents, uh -huh. relatives, they would just arrange it and, and the children would obey the wishes of the parents. Right. And there's all kinds of... Um... So, again, Anandrupa's uh, father is the eldest brother. So after the grandfather's demise all his brothers sisters became his responsibility so you can understand he was not just taking care of his family he was taking care of eight other families 
Wow. Yes. So this but, is another cultural uh, thing that that uh, the eldest son uh, took on all responsibility for the family traditionally in India, right? Um, took took the debt if there was debt, took the the riches if there was riches, and um, I remember one time uh, talking to a family in Delhi, and the younger brother said. If my brother told me to walk to Brindavan, it's about uh, 120 kilometers, and halfway he told me to turn around, I wouldn't second guess it. I would just turn around immediately. <laughs> I was like, I don't listen to my brother at all. <laughs> so different cultures. And we have to, and we means the, the world. I'm not talking about we as Americans. We as the world have to, um, respect other cultures that are different than our own and other ways of doing things. I mean, of course, if they're terrible and, you know, hurting, that's another thing, but in general, you know, uh, we, we, it's, 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 it's important. You know, I, I've had the, uh, I guess the privilege of visiting, I counted the other day, 51 countries in, in my life and just the importance of curiosity and humility in going entering another culture uh, and trying to set aside you know my cultural glasses like that okay shall we move on um, I, I would say that say yes, up until, up, I would say up until world war one just like based on some anecdotal things I've heard last 30 years or so uh, like you know, even the like the Western world, the marriages you could say they were semi-arranged. You know, not completely arranged. So, I uh, like especially like after World War One, that's when like this transition started to happen to you know what we consider love marriage and this uh, because like you mentioned, uh, marriages based on mostly economic considerations, and then there was a social environment. You know, for example. Yeah. Gonna be million millions of gas wherever you go yeah. and usually even people are when they're seeking out they try to find that the cast that they grew up in yeah. to marry into and whereas uh, in India you kind of with the arranged marriage system anyway the you kind of marry into the same cast so basically you know marriage or my opinion is like marriage and no matter whatever type of marriage it is it's yeah. a two, three year honeymoon period. And after that, <laughs> it's work. Yeah, it's yeah. work, responsibilities, floggings, however you want to look at it. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's, it's work. And, and then I think your, uh, your upbringing, your culture background kind of makes you do a certain thing one way or the other way. And, and, and Krishna it, helps also, you know, because, mm -hmm. like, for example, with me, uh, you know, you couldn't get too much culturally different than, well, you could, but a Jewish liberal guy from Long Island marrying a Irish Catholic from Ireland, mm -hmm. one of eight children <laughs> whose father was a brigadier general, <laughs> very different upbringings, my wife and I. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yeah. just somehow make it work. Yeah. Right. I, I, I guess you know, also we, yes, we need some common goals also. <laughs> yeah, so that helps that we both want yeah. to push. Yeah. 
And that's that's by the way. Now we're we're really uh, as they say getting into squirrels here, but um, uh, <laughs> that is um, an additional factor when people who are spiritually minded. Uh, so there's compatibility that just you know similar likes and you know similar ways of viewing the world, but then there's also similar uh, dedication to one's spirituality. Mm-hmm. To be taken into consideration sometimes. Okay, let's move on. Otherwise, we're never going to get the nectar uh, of immortality. <laughs> okay, we're going up to six. Um, so, text four. What to speak of human beings, even the demigods, demons, siddhas, gandharvas, charanas, and the various directors of the universe, the prajapatis, have never touched you before. It is not that we are unable to understand your identity. Oh, beautiful girl with beautiful eyebrows, certainly providence by his causeless mercy has sent you to please the senses and minds of all of us. Is this not a fact? We are now all engaged in enmity, uh, like hatred, among ourselves because of this one subject matter, the container of nectar. Although we have been born in the same family, we are becoming increasingly inimical. Oh, thin-waisted woman, who are so beautiful in your prestigious position. We therefore request you to favor us by settling our dispute. So in the field of conflict resolution, um, there's one way of, there's a, there's a famous book, the seminal book in negotiation and conflict resolution is called Getting to Yes by um, Fisher and Yuri. I think Patton in the second edition. And one of the four principles of negotiation or four ways to negotiate is, uh, it's called um, uh, choosing, uh, choose to use an objective criteria. So in other words, we're fighting over, let's say uh, the, let's say in America, the, the price of a used car, which of course is probably different now than a year ago, but anyway, that's, that's a different subject. Uh, and so you both decide that we'll accept Kelly's blue book. If you're familiar with that, that's a book that tells you the price of a used car. So you're, you're choosing a third objective criteria or in spiritual practices, you might say, well, um, you know, whatever so-and-so Swami says or whatever Koshtuba says, we'll both accept their take on things, okay? So that's what's going on here, um, maybe, in, in a very interesting way because they're all bam, bamboozled by, uh, by the beauty of uh, Mohini Murti. But they're, they're both a- accepting a third objective criteria. So it's, it's interesting, even in modern negotiation, you know, it, it manifests in modern negotiations as well. So I thought I would point that out. Um, children will sometimes do that whatever mom and dad say we'll accept or something like that, you know, any questions or comments on that point? Hare Krishna Prabhu. Yes. Uh, uh, one of the interesting thing is when they are making these inquiries, it is clearly stated that the demons were making these inquiries as well as they were very confident. So if you were to make demons and demigods stand, you know, in different groups, you will see, the demons were highly attractive, handsome, you know, big muscular bodied personalities with a lot of charisma. 
while on the other hand, you see Indra and other demigods, very meek looking, simple minded, humble. <laughs> so there was a big difference. Yeah. And they, you know, are challenging each other, but then they're picking up this third, you know, the third reference, like you mentioned, Mohini Muti, to please her. And they each one of them is confident that they would be selected. And we have to also understand that Bali Maharaj is the uh Raj in this particular assembly of Asuras. So Hare Krishna. Just wanted to share the reference. Thank you. Anything else? Okay, so they've if you're in a conflict with someone, sometimes you can choose uh, to uh, see if there's there's different ways uh, in in the book getting to yes. Um, one is called going to the balcony, meaning uh, take a break. Um, if you're in a heated debate or a heated negotiation, take a break, go to the balcony, look down at the situation, and make be a little more uh, cool-headed. Uh, another one is to, um, well, there's, there's different ones. We won't get into all the details of negotiation today. <laughs> so we're going on till nine. Text seven. Sorry, all of us. Sorry, can I just, if I can butt in? Sorry, I'm late, guys. I, I forgot that the hours changed today. Oh, <laughs> no problem, Dean. <laughs> What's up? You want to say oh. something? No, no, that's it. Same old. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, we sprung forward. What? Uh, I'm sorry. Where are we right now? Uh, I'm in Washington D.C. Oh no, I mean uh, which? I uh, know. It's, it's just, oh, okay. Just, <laughs> we're on eight nine. Okay. Seven. Eight nine seven. Okay. Okay. All right. All of us, both demons and demigods, have been born of the same father, Kasyapa. And thus we are related as brothers, but now we are exhibiting our personal prowess in dissension. Therefore, we request you to settle our dispute and divide the nectar equally among us. Having thus been requested by the demons, the Supreme Personality of God, who has assumed the form of a beautiful woman, began to smile. Looking at them with attractive feminine gestures, she spoke as follows. <laughs> so she's kind of, uh, yeah, pulling their leg here. The Supreme Personality of God in the form of Mohini told the demons, O oh, sons of Kasyapa Muni, I am only a prostitute. How is it that you have so much faith in me? A learned person never puts his faith in a, in a woman. So she's, you know, kind of like chiding them. And, uh, and again, this word, this word prostitute, um, it's, uh, I think we mentioned this last week, didn't we? That it's not, you know, uh, like, uh, in the Simon and Garfunkel song about the, the ladies on Second Avenue, uh, it's not—it's not like that. It's uh, it, basically the in in that culture, it was uh, a woman who attracted men and may uh, you know. So in that culture, if a woman had a a a, a relationship with anyone other than her husband, uh, it would be considered quite taboo, as true for a man, you know. Um, and so it's, it's, that word isn't being used in the modern context here, um, but more like a woman who, who uh, so she's saying, remember, she's one who's, they're not calling her that. They all want to marry her. But she was like saying, well, you guys are all lusting after me. You know, I'm just like a prostitute. I, 
in that sense. So she's, you know, um, saying, basically she's saying, why the heck are you trusting me? <laughs> and, but she's telling, you know, she's saying that truthfully, you can't trust me, but they like, no, 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 we can totally trust you. <laughs> right. Um, so let's go on to 11. Um, so, oh, demons, as monkeys, jackals, and dogs are unsteady in their sexual relations and want newer and newer friends every day, women who live independently seek new friends daily. Friendship with such a woman is never permanent. That is the opinion of learned scholars. So you want me to all have relationships with you? Sukadev Goswami continued. After the demons heard the words of Mohini Murti, who had spoken as if jokingly, they were all very confident. They laughed with gravity, and ultimately they delivered the container of nectar into her hands. So um, it, it's kind of like, you know, there was that, there's that um, little uh, pun or joke, you know, what do you say when you can't lie, but you also can't tell the truth? Anyone know the answer? You say, I'm fine, right? <laughs> I think I told you that, you know, sometimes at work, people will say that, you know, to me, like, how are you, you know, how, you know happy Monday, how are you? And I'll say, well, do you want the long version or the short version? Because <laughs> how am I is, a, you know, it could take three hours. Right? But anyway, um, so in this case, uh, so in the purport, it's very interesting that Prabhupada compares Mohini Murti to Lord Buddha. The personality of Godhead in his former Mohini was certainly not joking, but talking seriously with gravity. You shouldn't trust me, demons. The demons, however, being captivated by Mohini Murti's bodily features, took her words as a joke and confidently delivered the container of nectar into her hands. Thus, Mohini Murti resembles Lord Buddha, who appeared Samohaya Suradvisham to cheat the Asuras. The word Suradvisham refers to those who are envious of the demigods or devotees. Sometimes an incarnation of the Supreme Personality of God cheats the atheists. So in this regard, Prabhupada uh, was once in a conversation. He said, yes, that is also the description given in Srimad Bhagavatam. Lord Buddha appeared at a time when people were atheistic and accustomed to killing many animals in sacrificial offerings. So in, in, the, in the name of so-called Vedic sacrifices, they were killing animals to eat them. Lord Buddha was very much aggrieved to see poor animals being killed unnecessarily. Therefore, he preached a religion of nonviolence. Because the people were atheists, Lord Buddha, in order to bring them under his control, means give them his mercy, agreed with them and said, yes, there is no God, but listen to me. This is a kind of transcendental cheating. In the beginning, he said, there is no God, but he is God himself. In this way, people accepted his words and instructions. Animal killers cannot understand God and religion, although they may have some vague idea. Lord Buddha wanted to stop their sinful activities and reestablish a system of religion dedicated to nonviolence. Therefore, he rejected the Vedas, which allowed restricted animal sacrifice. Um, so, so Krishna and in his different incarnations, very multifaceted, as we're seeing here in these two chapters, right? You know, the form of a tortoise, the form of Mohini Murti. It, it's like, whoa. You know, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's quite a Buddha. It's quite amazing the different ways that Krishna uh, comes to give um, 
uh, his mercy to others. Some questions or comments on this? Oh, okay, yeah. Gene, you couldn't find it still? That was Canto 8, Chapter 9, Verse 11. Yeah, I just, I just found it. Sorry. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so Buddha is very interesting in that sense. Um, and the other thing I found in my travels is that in some parts of the world, they do worship Buddha in a very personal way. Not an atheistic way. You know, in uh, Thailand, I've seen in parts of China, uh, Taiwan, mm, Burma. Yeah, like that, which is also interesting. Um, because, and there's very different practices of Buddhism, Mahayana, uh, what is it, Hinayana, and, and um, Zen, and, and, and the, the Western... Um, introduction to Buddhism is quite different in a lot of ways to what you'll find uh, in the East. Yes, Dean. How do you, um, most Buddhists look at Krishna consciousness or, or for lack of a better term, Hinduism, or uh, do, do they see the two as compatible or, or do Buddhists look at their philosophy is more kind of like how Christians would Judaism similar, but nonetheless, you know, a progression of the former. Uh, maybe that, or maybe how Christians might see, some Christians might see Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. I don't know. I, I know there's different, it would depend on the Buddhist, really, mm -hmm. uh, and what they've been exposed to. Um, for example, I know a lot of Buddhists were not vegetarian. Uh -huh. and, and according to the Vedic version of Buddhism, that's like the main thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so, uh, where, uh, and others, um, the, the best vegetarian restaurants in uh, China would be at Buddhist temples by far. You know, and then there's these incredible spreads of like, like, like it's a buffet, but sometimes like 150 different preparations. You pay one price and, you know, it's all you can eat. Wow. Um, so, so there it's, it's much more the connection, right? So it, it, it varies. And even as you just use the word Hinduism, of course, it varies all over the map and and Vaishnavism and specifically, you know, Gaudiya Vaishnavism that we follow is, I think it would be seen by most as quite an orthodox or, you know, uh, version. Yeah. Can you type the best word for, for that, that, that we should use? I know yes. Hinduism is kind of a, a Western word, right? So. Uh, the best word, it, it would depend on the context. Sometimes it's simple to say, uh, you'll hear Anutama use this. Uh, also, monotheistic Hinduism, right? Because what people think of Hinduism with the 330 million gods, most of those would be demigods, right? And not Vishnu Tattva, as we say. Yeah, anytime I bring it up, the first thing, 
say an American is like, well, don't they believe in a lot of gods? Right. No, no, we believe one God, uh, although he comes in different incarnations. And, and there's a variety of there's six different categories of his incarnations. And then there's many, many demigods. Right. Yeah. So if you're talking to a scholar, you might say, uh, Gaudiya Vaishnava, Vaishnavism. And that refers, the Gaudiya, refer, Vaishnavism means the worship of Vishnu or Krishna. And Gaudiya specifically refers to Lord Chaitanya. Um, so, so different, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great question. It gets a little tricky. Uh, or you might just say, you know, I'm a, 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 what's, what's very popular today, in, especially in the West, is uh, I follow the Bhakti tradition. Mm-hmm. And that that that's easy, you know, devotion to God. What does oh, what does bhakti mean? Devotion to God. Mm-hmm. And that that's a nice way to put it, right? Or I practice bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion. Okay, right, and that, that would be the equivalent to Vaishnavism, because Vaish, all all the different aspect, uh, different sampradayas are called, or different uh, lineages of Vaish, of. Vaishnavism world, they're all bhakti, bhakti yoga, yogis. And bhakti, yeah, just like uh, the yoga studio downtown that uh, uh, Gopi Manjari runs, Bhakti Yoga DC, or the Bhakti Center in New York. Like that. Is that all right? If you really, oh, yeah, want, to, if you really want to get it, if you really want to be well, there's someone, what do you, oh, well, I follow a chincha beta beta tattva. And just watch them kind of smile and go, oh, how nice. <laughs> no idea what you mean. <laughs> For those who aren't familiar with that, that means inconceivably simultaneously one and different. And it's the basic philosophy of Lord Chaitanya. But obviously most people are. <laughs> but if you know somebody who's really asking like a dumb question, oh, <laughs> Haribo. Um, so, uh, Dean, you can, Prabhupada was very fond of describing the hierarchy as, as being like a, a big company with a CEO and many administrative divisions, you know, that are the demigods, but they're, they're all answerable to the CEO yeah. or the king, the king with many different, uh, yeah, yeah. You also use Krishna consciousness sometimes. And Krishna consciousness is a Prabhupada's translation of a beautiful verse. Krishna bhakti rasa bhavati mati. Uh, Krishna bhakta, we know that Krishna bhakti, we know what that means, right? Krishna and bhakti. Rasa means a relationship. Krishna rasa, uh, Krishna rasa, Krishna bhakti rasa bhavat. Bhava means this uh, deep emotion. And Mati means like focus on that. So this focus mm-hmm. on the deep emotion of Krishna Bhakti. And that was his, uh, he translated that quite esoteric line in Sanskrit into Krishna consciousness. Okay. That's a great question, Dean. Uh, I like yeah, that. Thanks. That was a fun way to, uh, to do it. So we, you know, we would, we adjusted according to, who were, who's, who's asking the question in the context. Mm. If I'm in Southern India and I would, they, they usually can tell by the tilak even because of different tilaks, but then I would say, uh, oh, uh, Kodiya Vaishnavism. 
-hmm. What do you say, Henry? All of the above. Very good answer. <laughs> it wasn't a multiple choice test, but very good. Okay, so we're carrying on and we're going up to 24, so a lot of verses. 12, thereafter, the Supreme Personality of God, having taken possession of the container of nectar, smiled slightly and spoke in attractive words. She, my dear demons, if you accept whatever I may do, whether honest or dishonest, then I can take responsibility for dividing the nectar among you. The chief of the demons were not very expert in deciding things. Upon hearing the sweet words of Mohini Murti, they immediately asserted, yes, they answered, what you have said is all right. Thus, the demons agreed to accept her decision. So when making, we can learn from this, when making important decisions in life, we can uh, think carefully about the decision, right? Um, you might even look into something like Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats. And you can, uh, if you um, uh, Google that, so one hat is, you know, what is the opportunity here? Another hat is what could go wrong? Another hat is uh, let's gather all the information. There's six of them. And you, you kind of line those up. And then sometimes you can make a better decision because here the demons were not very expert in deciding things. They, 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 they capriciously, they took a, a decision very quickly without thinking of the pros and cons. Or uh, ben, Benjamin Franklin had the idea of you just put pros and cons before making a decision. Uh, another way of doing it, in, another Edward de Bono trick is uh, uh, pros, cons, and interesting things. They're neither a pro nor a con, but they're part of this decision and they're in the third category. So here, um, they were so, yeah, bamboozled by uh, Mohini Murti that they just said, no, whatever you say, whatever you say, whatever you say, right? And, uh, Okay, 14 and 15. The, demon, the demigods and demons then observed the fast. After bathing, they offered clarified butter and oblations into the fire. These are all uh, ritualistic um, niceties. Um, and gave charity to the, the cows and to the Brahmins. Of course, giving charity to cows and Brahmins is lovely. And members of the other orders of society, namely the Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Shudras, who were all rewarded as they deserved. Thereafter, the demigods and demons perform ritualistic ceremonies under the direction of the brahmanas. Then they dressed themselves with new garments according to their own choice, decorated their bodies with ornaments and sat facing east on seats made of kusha grass. So they got themselves all nicely up and in the right consciousness to receive the, the nectar. Um, and in the purport, Prabhupada says an interesting thing, a sannyasi, a person about to perform a ritualistic ceremony, should not dress himself in cloth sewn with a needle. The, the idea is that a very, now that's, that's a detail, which we still follow um, in, in, in some rituals, but the idea being that uh, very clean, very simple uh, dress, um, and one takes you know, before one does worship on the altars in our temples, they, they, take a, they take a bath. They only wear new clothes that they haven't eaten in or done any, slept or anything. And um, it's all, there's some rules for cleanliness in that regard. 
Okay. So 16 and 17. O king, as the demigods and demons sat facing east in the arena, fully decorated with flower garlands and lamps and fragrant with the smoke of incense, that woman dressed in a most beautiful sari, her ankle bells tinkling, entered the arena, walking very slowly because her, of her big hips, uh, her big low hips. Her eyes were restless due to, the, due to youthful pride. Her breasts were like water jugs. Her thighs resembled the trunks of elephants, and she carried a water pot in her hand. Her attractive nose and cheeks and her ears adorned with golden earrings made her face very beautiful. As she moved, her sari's borders on her breast moved slightly aside. When the demigods and demons sat, saw these beautiful features of Mohini Murti, who was glancing at them and slightly smiling, they were all completely enchanted. One second, just checking the oh, 24, isn't it? Dem demons are by nature crooked like snakes. Therefore, to distribute a share of the nectar to them was not at all feasible, since this would be as dangerous as supplying milk to a snake. Considering this, the Supreme Personality of God, who never falls down, did not deliver a share of the nectar to the demons. The Supreme Personality of God, as Mohini Murti, the master of the universe, arranged separate lines of sitting places and seated the demigods and demons according to their positions. So they lined up. Taking the container of nectar in her hands, she first approached the demons, satisfying them with sweet words, and thus cheated them of their share of the nectar. So she got to approach them first. They're like, yes, yes. And then she kind of made an about face. Then she administered the nectar to the demigods who were sitting at a distant place to make them free from invalidity, old age, and death. So that, that, was, a, that was a verse uh, Guru Das said, I, it says there, invalidity, old age, and death. So that's why I don't want to contradict that in any way, unless I get some more uh, information from a scholar. O king, since the demons had promised to accept whatever the woman did, whether just or unjust, now to keep this promise, to show their equilibrium and to save themselves from fighting with a woman, they remained silent. The demons had developed affection for Mohini Murti and a kind of faith in her, and they were afraid of disturbing their relationship. Therefore, they showed respect and honor to their words, to her words, and did not say anything that might disturb their friendship with her. Rahu, the demon who causes eclipses of the sun and moon, covered himself with the dress of a demigod and thus entered the assembly of the demigods and drank nectar without being detected by anyone, even by the Supreme Personality of God. <clears throat> the moon and the sun, however, being because of permanent animosity towards Rahu, understood the situation. Thus, Rahu was detected. The Supreme Personality of God, Hari, using his disc, which was sharp as a razor, at once cut off Rahu's head. When Rahu's head was severed from his body, the body being untouched by the nectar could not survive. Rahu's head, however, having been touched by the nectar, became immortal. Thus, Lord Brahma accepted Rahu's head as one of the planets. Since Rahu is an eternal enemy of the moon and sun, he always tries to attack them on the nights of the full moon and dark moon. The Supreme Personality of God is the best friend and well-wisher of the three worlds. Thus, when the demigods had almost finished drinking the nectar, the Lord, in the presence of all the demons, disclosed his original form. <laughs> Surprise! The place, the time, the cause, the purpose, the activity, and the ambition were all the same for both the demigods and the demons. But the demigods achieved one, per, one result and the demons another. Because the demigods are always under the shelter 
from the dust of the Lord's lotus feet. They could very easily drink the nectar and get its result. The demons, however, not having sought shelter at the lotus feet of the Lord, were unable to achieve the result they desired. Um, oh, I wanted to go back to 24. Sorry. So in 24, Prabhupada writes, the supreme, the supreme personality of God, Mohini Murti, was able to be, he will to, um, was able to bewilder all the demons. But Rahu was so clever that he was not bewildered. Rahu could understand that Mohini Murti was cheating the demons. And therefore, he changed his dress, disguised himself as a demigod, and sat down in the assembly of demigods. Here, one may ask why the Supreme Personality of God could not detect Rahu. The reason is that the Lord wanted to show the effects of drinking nectar. This will be re revealed in the following verses. So the point is that Krishna is called um, Trikalagya. Three means three, and Kala means time, and uh, Gya means knowledge. So Krishna knows past, present, and future. So it's not that, so Krishna is never bewildered. Although sometimes he will uh, act in that way in his pastimes for different reasons, like he had a reason here. Um, and it's also important to understand the perfection of great devotees, right? Like, for example, Srila Prabhupada. So we might say, so when we say somebody is perfect, it doesn't mean they don't forget a verse or, um, you know, every managerial decision is absolutely perfect. And, you know, they, they know how to play the stock market in order to become a billionaire in three days. Now, the perfection is that their only desire is to please Krishna. And beyond that, they know what Krishna wants them to know, but they're not God. You know, devotees are not God, and so when we when we say that when we read or hear about the the exalted nature of a devotee of Krishna, especially an advanced devotee of Krishna, um, don't don't think that um, they they're no time they know you know past, present, and future the way Krishna does. And this actually came up one time in a morning walk that Prabhupada was having with his disciples in Mayapur. And he made it quite clear that, you know, no, the spiritual master, the great devotee knows what Krishna wants them to know, but they're not Krishna. They're not in everyone's heart. Um, although, you know, so if Krishna wants, like it says about Sukadeva Goswami in the first canto, who could enter the hearts of all, at least his instructions could like that. So, um, so here, it was not a fault of Krishna's that he gave the nectar to Rahu. He was, uh, he had an intention in doing so. Yes, Dean, you have your hand up or is that from before? No, yeah, um, it's probably, uh, I don't know, it's a rough question, but. Uh, okay, next, so, question. next question. Yeah. <laughs> I know, go ahead. Uh, you know, I have to kind of, can't help but apply my, previously learned logic but one of how do you um you know on the one hand um obviously we believe in free will right you know right. and yet uh there are these 
you know, um, Krishna knows the future, uh, right? So that seems to suggest that, I don't know, the two seem on the surface a little bit incompatible. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, yeah. Free will is, a, is a, an established fact throughout the scriptures. You know, just like, you know, you just chose to scratch your eye or, you know, or whatever, or sniffle. I mean, well, that may be kind of unconscious, but we do a lot of, you know, you chose to be on this call. You could have slept in or you could have, you know, gone to the Golden Gate Bridge behind you or whatever. Uh, but you chose to be here. So we know we have free will. Um, one answer I heard about this, this was years ago by Hri Dynanders. Well, Christian's just very smart. <laughs> but that might not be fully satisfactory. Uh, I'd like to think about this a little bit more and see if I can give a, a really good answer. Uh, I mean, that's one way that Hri Dhananamaraj explained it, so I don't, I'm not trying to contradict what he said, but I'm not sure if that, to, to, yeah, to, to our logical mind, how does that work? Krishna's really smart, so he knows, but at the same time, we have total free will, right? And, and and he acknowledges the free will in the Gita, right in, uh, I think it's verse 63 of the 18th chapter. He said, now I have explained all this to you, now do as you wish to do. Mm -hmm. Right? And, and, you know, you can't be like in the 1970s, uh, there was that TV show that the devil made me do it. <laughs> you know, and you can't blame the devil for, uh, for doing something, you know, inappropriate or, or mean to somebody, uh, you know, unkind to somebody else. And the fact that we get reactions, we get karma for our, our activities uh, is, is an indication of free will. So I will, um, I have to, now I have two questions to, to ponder. Um, I mean, one of my, one answer I was thinking of giving was, you know, it's, it's in a general sense that, you know, there's, there's cyclical time and things like that, but I don't want to, that, that's a bit speculative. So let me, let me ponder that. All right. But can I I'll offer one, one idea? Okay. okay sure. Absolutely. Um, there's this, there's this theory, chaos theory. Yep. It's kind of one of these, I guess you could call it unified theories that sort of applies many manner of things. And among many things, that theory suggests that there is this, this random element to the universe. You know, they're, they're just, for instance, a genetic mutation. It's just completely random. There, there's, there's no um, real way to predict that. It just seems to happen randomly. Um, and, yeah, one thought that I had was, well, maybe that randomness isn't entirely random. And even though we are operating with free will, uh, the creator, whatever you want to call it, Krishna has this fine-tuned adjustment that he can use through this supposedly random thing, which perhaps isn't so random. So though we are operating within free, our own free will, the results of our free will is highly is something that can be tinkered with by a you know a greater consciousness and thusly 
um, the outcomes can be. Of course, I use a very material sort of scientific way to try to explain it, but that's one idea. Possible? Possible. It's, it's tough to explain. Uh, I, I have this plan someday of writing a paper on that. All right, cool. Let's see if it ever happens. Hmm. Uh, I'm just trying to, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to quickly see if what Prabhupada had said about this, but I'll have to do a more thorough look uh, because it's a great question. I'll give you an example, all right? So there's a, there's a, a football game, right? And some kicker, it's the last, last uh, play of the game, right? Kicker's up there for a field goal, they're down by two. You know, he, he kicks the ball, right? We think, oh, it's, it's uh, you know, completely physics that's going to determine whether he wins. But what if it's not entirely physics? You know, Krishna knows we can't possibly measure all that physics. So uh, he has this rather broad ability to determine whether or not that ball goes into, into the you know, yep. field goal or not. And it's also now, I'm not saying that Krishna necessarily cares so much about whether the, the Cowboys beat the Commanders or whoever they are now. But, um, no, no, Christian's definitely on the Cowboys side because he's a cowherd boy himself. Oof. <laughs> no, bad joke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I just read one thing that might be interesting. Um, Prabhupada writes, since there is, no, there is no past, present, or future for God, yeah. So think about that. And the other thing is, yeah, his powers are so beyond our comprehension that yeah. the, the mere task is trying. But, you know, just in the Western world, that's not going to cut it for people who are so inclined to. Right, right. But there's no past, present, or future for God. Let's see what Adam has to say. Yes, from thank Hawaii, you, Prabhu. From Hawaii, early in the morning for you. Yeah, sorry I was late too. I, I didn't. We don't change the clocks here in Hawaii ever. So. Uh, oh, no wonder you're so happy. I missed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to um, uh, bring up one thought that I've been kind of thinking about with free will, because, um, like Dean is saying, like, oh, maybe, perhaps, you know, there's a more divine hand, like, um, orchestrating the seemingly random things that are happening or or like this so that the the thought is mainly does krishna himself have free will absolutely Be, well so like but he essentially like can do no wrong right he could never make a mistake or do something evil rather than good right so it's like if you don't have the choice of doing the wrong thing then do you have any choice at all are you or is it do you know what, you know what i mean by that and then yeah. you know it kind of goes into what you were saying as well about like well he is he is um free of the element of time and without time and the, the moving forward of events how how can one uh enact any sort of, of will at all. I don't know. The, I was c confused by a concept of that. Thank you for entertaining oh, thank you. my Thank thought. you for that. Um, 
Yeah, he's uh, two words that are used in the very first verse of the Srimad Bhagavatam is uh, abhigya and swarat. Um, so he's fully cognizant, abhigya, and swarat means fully independent. He's not controlled in any way by karma. Um, so it's just it's just his nature that he would never do anything bad. Uh, he's uh, he you know his very nature is one who wants to ex exchange love. Um, See, doesn't that imply lack of choice? Because isn't our choice dictated by being pulled in one way or another? Our choice, yes. But Krishna is. That's why I said yes He's fully independent. He's not. He's not controlled. So the technical point is this. So that, remember, we have to, again, like, well, you weren't there from the beginning, but we have to look at the, um, in this sense, it's not cultural or historical, but the philosophical con context. And so in, in the Bhagavad Gita times and Bhagavatam times, the, there was this clear understanding in people who had some spiritual background that, that were controlled by the modes of material nature. Goodness, passion, ignorance, and a combination, some combination thereof. And one of the, and so it's very significant, although for me, I read it and I just go, okay, whatever. But for someone who's seeped in that understanding, the fact that Krishna is not controlled by the three modes of material nature um, is super significant. Um, mm. So, he, if Krishna wanted to, he could do terrible things, but he just doesn't want to. <laughs> he can do whatever he, he wants. He's the source of modes of material nature. So. Yes, he's not controlled by them. Yeah. Dean, you want to add to this? Yeah, I'll say one, one last thing on this topic. So well, one thing I, I have kind of thought about is... Um, you know, there, there's, of course, a strong elements that, uh, you know, this devotion is not supposed to be a purely intellectual act, right? It's supposed to be a, a, an emotional thing. So one of the things that I've thought, well, well, at least at the beginning, I've got to say there has to be some intellect involved, right? Because there's a lot of different faiths that one can choose from. So at least at some level, you know, you have to apply all right, well, here's what I'm observing, and, and this makes the most sense to yes. me, right? And, right. And, but at the same time, like, if, if you could just purely, like, come up with a formula, like you would in math, and, quote, prove that Gaidia Vaishnavism is the correct path, it would be a purely intellectual thing, and there would be not, not there would be no, uh, you know, this emotional devotional thing, which is what you need. So I, I think it's almost, um, uh, what's the word, uh, compatible that, that you can't fully explain all this stuff. If it were possible to do that, there would no longer be this ability to, to apply that, that devotion. So it, there's just enough more, I would say, even logic to everything, where just 
the, the what you're supposed to do on a daily basis, how it fits within the world made enough sense to me, but there's also enough murky stuff or stuff that you can't explain or that seems this, that, that it gives you this ability to make that final jump with just um, your heart, I suppose, and, and just drop, forget all this need to like, you know, uh, Plato eyes or, or you know Socratic <laughs> method uh, the um, the yeah. philosophy and and if it even if you were able to do that purely just logically prove this is the correct path and compatible with everything in the universe then perhaps you would lose that that ability yes so Prabhupada's name was given to him was Bhakti Vedanta. So bhakti, we know, devotion. And Vedanta is the more intellectual pursuit. Uh, and the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says at the very end, uh, one who listens to the Bhagavad Gita worships me with their intelligence. It, it is very much, it, not, not exclusively, but it, it, a lot of it is, uh, ex, the Gita is taught on the, to satisfy our intellect. So, um, Sangshaya, so in the fourth canto, Prabhupada talks about the word sangshaya, which means doubt. And he said, it's very healthy to have doubt in the beginning of, 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 of you know, because one wants, you know, especially, you know, different cultures are different, right? You know, some, some or, or different people are different. Some people will go to a church, a mosque, a temple, and, oh, I just love the music. I love that, you know, I just love God with all my heart. And, you know, when it's time for philosophy, say, well, you know, leave that to the, somebody else, you know, and they're, they're simple hearted and like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, that wasn't the main approach Prabhupada took in, especially in coming to the West, that, you know, he really wanted, he really thought it was important to satisfy our intellect. You know, the, that, that things like the, the fact that we're not our body. And then, and he would talk so much about things like, you know, what's the difference between a live body and a dead body? And, 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 why, you know, why is one person born with a silver spoon in their mouth and another person born in abject poverty and um, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So, um, so, I really, so I really like Prabhupada's name, Bhakti Vedanta. And I also find in my own life that the kind of things that I needed when I was younger to satisfy my intellect and give me faith and things like that. Now in my older age, maybe practicing this for so long, and uh, that's less important to me. Of course, it's still important when I'm talking to other people, but uh, otherwise, you know, hey, we're reading this, you know, I think, and, and they go together, the, the bhakti part, the devotional part, it, it reinforces and, and um, gives realization about the more intellectual part. When, when it deepens the understanding of the intellect by, by the experience. And bhakti is experiential. You know, George Harrison in that beautiful preface to the Krishna, uh, Krishna book said, you know, it's don't, you know, you can't uh, uh, enjoy honey by licking the outside of the jar. Yeah. Right. I really... I really liked one thing Bram Shway said one time when he was at the temple and he was talking about how um, Radha 
even Krishna could not comprehend Radha's uh, devotion or, or just to him. And I think he, he had probably thought about this too in a similar way where he was, because if Krishna knows everything, how can he be blissful? I mean, it's almost, wouldn't it become boring? But there is this element even to him where there's this wonder and, and odd, yeah. I think, you know. Yeah, wonder of Radharani's love, yes. Yeah. In other words, not even he can fully intellectualize everything, I think is what it suggests. No, 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 that's, that's dry. Exactly. But it has to, uh, there has to be love. Uh, we read in chapter four, verse 10, in our little Bhagavad Gita group this week, um, that also knowledge can come to love. Um, was it, it was, let me just, I'll just quote it accurately. Four, oops, four, 10, oops. Uh, being freed from attachment, fear and anger, being fully absorbed in me and taking refuge, refuge in me, many, many persons in the past became purified by knowledge of me and thus they all attained transcendental love for me. So they get knowledge of Krishna and that morphs into love for Krishna. Or I, we quoted that song, to know, know, love him. To know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. That's <laughs> old song. Um, so they go together. They go together. But ultimately, you know, as Prabhupada once joked, you know, my only concern is what is in Krishna's lunchbox? <laughs> in other words, <laughs> you know, he just wants to, uh, you know, uh, experience bhakti. But bhakti, it, it's, it's, it's not sentimental. It has to be directed in the right way. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's real. It's a, it's, a, it's a science. Probably we'd like to say the science of bhakti. Okay, wow, we, um, we, some really interesting questions. I have two things I have to look into this week. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, for those who are following today is Ikadasi and uh, a day to increase our spiritual practices. And we are very fortunate here at the temple. We have His Holiness Romopad Swami speaking today at the, uh, the temple. So we'll see you all next week, Krishna willing. Thank you. Thank you. Great class. Thank you. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Krishna. Thank, Thank you. Krishna. Thank you.